and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America, or, as our program otherwise might be called, Truth Be Told. Why, well, if St. Paul were alive today and wrote a letter to us here in America, he would tell us things that were and are true. The truth does not change. It does not change with the times. It does not change from place to place. Now, today, many people don't believe in truth. They don't believe there, are such, there is such a thing as truth. They believe the truth is what we make it, that it can change. It's fluid. Uh, it depends on what's happening in the moment. So how can we know if there is truth? And if there is, how can we know, how can we know it when we see it? Well, a couple of ways. One is uh, to use our own reason to examine and ask what makes sense. Another is to look at the products of people's decisions. Uh, do they produce good results? Do they give people a sense of peace? Or do they create more consternation and division? And that is what we do here. That is what we do on, on these programs. We look at things from that sort of uh, perspective. And by the way, this program is being brought to you in conjunction with St. Joseph Radio and the St. Joseph Evangelization Network, who kindly lend us their studios to record this broadcast. So, uh, today, what are we going to be talking about? Well, what we're going to be talking about is a television show. Watch any television, Bob? Every once in a while, yeah. Well, did you happen to catch an episode of The View? For people who don't know it, The View is uh, basically a program where uh, a bunch of ladies get around and discuss the topics of the day. And one of the people, one of the hosts, one of the, uh, I guess, you know, perennial but longtime host of the program, is uh, an actress, famous actress named Whoopi Goldberg. And she said something on a re recent episode of, uh, of that program that uh, caught my attention. She said this. She said, the abortion rights battle is starting to blur the lines between church and state. The Archbishop of San Francisco is calling for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to be denied receiving communion because of her pro-choice stance. He's one of the priests who also called President Biden to be denied sacrament. That's not your job, dude. That is not, you, you can't, it's not up to you to make that decision, she continued to say. Um, continuing, she also went on. You know what is what is the saying? It's kind of amazing, but you know what is the point of communion, right? It, it's for sinners. It's for sinners. The reward of saints, but the bread of sinners. How dare you? How dare you? She then uh, proclaimed to the Archbishop of San Francisco. So this struck me. She's telling a bishop that he really doesn't have the right to say to a certain member of um, the people in his archdiocese that they can't receive communion. And so you're trying to tell a bishop what he can't do in his own church. So that seemed intriguing. Now, you know, this, this whole subject area obviously is a hot one. And people have very differing views on this issue. And they can get into very heated discussions and worse on this issue. The church has always had a certain position uh, that hasn't changed at all. 
they believe that there is a truth. They believe that truth is that every person is created by God and every person is created in the image of God and every person is therefore very special to God and therefore should be very special to us. But that's really not the issue that we're going to be talking about here today. The issue is, is wrapped up in abortion. It's connected with abortion. But the real issue is, what is the view of people in our society about the church? What should be the proper relationship between a church, in this case the Catholic Church, a religious belief, and the government, the state, the political population at large? What should that relationship be? If someone like Whoopi Goldberg is going to say what she said, what is behind that? What would her view of this be? Because if it's, it seems like it would be very different from ours. And if that's so, then it's important to understand it and where she's coming from. And it would seem to me that her argument would kind of run something like this. Look, abortion is the law of the land. You and the church um, don't like that, and so you try to impose your view on others in their personal relationship with God. And I suppose if you look at it from that perspective, there's, um, I mean, it's understandable to for, for people who um, are not, you know, for people perhaps who are outside the church, you know, people have people who don't necessarily think as as you and I do, Bob. Um, at least I think I know what you think, Bob. <laughs> I, I would guess you're right on the money. That would be my bet. Um, but uh, you know, there's this is. I mean, it would sound reasonable to a fair number of people. You know, you're trying to impose your view. This is my personal relationship with God, and you know, you're putting these rules on it. And heck, you know, didn't you know? Didn't Saint Paul, for example, say, "Hey, you know, the law of God's written on your heart. What's important is what's in your heart." and all, you know, of that sort of thing. Um, but if we dive deeper into what she's saying, I think we'd find this. I think she's looking at the church as a political actor. The church is engaged in politics. She says the abortion rights battle is starting to blur the lines between church and state. It's a battle. There is a contest. It's a political battle over abortion. And she sees the action of the archbishop in this context as some play being made in that political battle. So the church is seen through a political lens. It's a political actor here. It's stepping into a political question when that's really not its place. And so, you know, they really don't have the right to do this. Well, of course, they have a right, just like anybody else, to enter into a political battle and express their views, and the church has done that consistently. This is what our view on, on abortion is. It's not appropriate. And it's always been pretty much the same for it's as long been, as I remember. It's always been pretty much the same. Um, so would she, de would she deny that? Well, I think not. Um, but it's when the church takes an action on it, but the action's being done inside the church. So what's going on there? Well, I think you'd have to, in order to maintain this position, you have to look at religion as a 
personal matter. Your relationship with God is a personal one. It, you don't need the church. And if the church comes in between you and how you want to structure your relationship with God, then the church is, is delving into territory that it doesn't have any right in, in which to delve. And so if the church really doesn't, then it's because that relationship is really exclusively personal. If it doesn't, if you don't allow anybody to come in to that situation, anybody like the church, then it's exclusively personal. Uh, I believe Ms. Goldberg gave an interview, I think it was in 2016, where she talked a little bit about her own faith. And, you know, people asked her, well, you've got the name Goldberg. That wasn't the, was not the name she was born with. Um, are you Jewish? And she said, well, I don't practice any of the rituals, um, you know, and so I don't go to synagogue or church or anything like that. But, you know, I, I talk to God and he talks to me and, and so on. And, and so I don't practice any rituals of a formal church, but I have my religion. So I think we're probably in pretty safe territory, surmising as we are, that a person making a statement like she made on this episode of The View is somebody who looks at religion as a personal, private kind of matter. Um, and I think you could also say that her view involves this kind of a conclusion, which is, look, other people make the law, and you must follow that law, even if it is contrary to your religion. What does that mean? That means that there is no separation of church and state. She's saying that the church, by engaging in uh, making an internal church governance decision is entering into the political sphere. Well, if by making an internal church decision enters into the political sphere, then there really is no separation between the church and state. Where do, if abortion is the law, and that must control internal church decisions, where's the line of separation? The church, I mean, the state is paramount. This, the church is subordinate to the state. There is no separation. The state, then, is the church. I mean, if you take this to its logical conclusion, that's what you end up with. The state is the church. And I think, Ray, that the position of the church, uh, a very difficult one, but the position of the church is to help us understand what God desires from us. It's not to follow the laws of the land, although the church should try to work within those, but it should certainly state its opinion when those laws do not agree with what the church thinks God is trying to say to us, to tell us, and one of those is abortion. It is God is clearly saying, do not kill, thou shalt not kill, do not commit abortion, and the church not only has the right but the obligation to make sure people understand who God is and what he's thinking. And they do that through a couple ways. One, lots of history and understanding and schooling and learning what it is that God has taught us. St. Paul has taught us and God has taught us through Jesus himself and then through the prophets and St. Paul. But two, for us to truly listen to God, not to listen to the rest of the world, not to listen to the clamor or the chatter, but to clearly go off by ourselves and pray and truly listen to God and what he has. And if we do that, that will be on our heart. We will understand and we will come to know that killing 
is wrong. And so the church has not only it should it go be very clear about what it's saying, it has the obligation to tell everyone, here's what we think God is telling us. And I think that's a requirement. We've got to go out and let people know in every way that we can. Well, you're absolutely right, Bob. The church has spent, I don't know, how many man hours would you say over the life of the church? A billion seems like. Examining what God wants from us, what's his will, the whole relationship Mm -hmm. between man and God. I, it's it's probably approaches some infinite infinite number of man hours. And so that's a lot of effort, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, um, Effort. <laughs> and energy and, yeah. and studying and contemplating and all of those things. So this is difficult. And, you know, somebody like, like Ms. Goldberg, when she makes a statement, yeah, her view on her, you know, her own relationship with God, I mean, that is, uh, that is, in fact, her private domain. And, you know, I mean, this, these are difficult things for a lot of people to, to grasp. Is there a God? What does God want from us? Are there hard and fast rules? I mean, so if someone has an opinion, you know, just like the church is entitled to ours, she's absolutely entitled to hers. And we assume and uh, proclaim that, I mean, I'm going to proclaim, in my view, that um, she's being very earnest and sincere and well-meaning in the positions that she's taken. I don't think there's any, any kind of ill intent here. This is what she believes. Um, but I think it's a fair statement to say that if you look at these three points, if, if we look at these three implications of what she says, namely that, you know, the church is to be viewed as a political actor, that religion is a personal matter, and that when society is spoken on, on certain issues, the church has to be subordinate to it. I think there's a common denominator through those, to, to those three implications uh, and uh, or three tenets, and that would be that they come from a view of life without God or without a sense of a real God. Maybe it's a, maybe there's a sense of a God, but he's somebody distant because the church is not a political actor. The church, its primary concern is not politics. The primary concern of the church, saving of souls. Amen. The eternal life of each individual creation of God. That's the real concern of the church. God and souls and eternity, these are very real uh, aspects of everything that the church is concerned about. It's not a political actor. It's a religious actor. And if God is... I don't want to say a real part of your life because I don't want to imply that it, it's not for Ms. Goldberg or people who think like Ms. Goldberg does. Because, for example, I mean, because we know what she says, what she said, is something a lot of people would agree with. This is not an opinion of hers that is a solitary one. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of people who think like she does. And so, you know, we're not going to be casting any aspersions on anybody. But even though they might have a sense of God, but I would, I would, I would argue, and I think I'd be right in arguing that um, God would not be somebody, uh, somebody who is 
really present in every moment, uh, everything you do every day. God's not right there. Because if God was that big in, your, in, in our lives, um, then you wouldn't look at a church as a political actor. You look at them first as what they are, a religious actor. Um, second, religion is not just a personal matter. If you have a real sense of God, then I think you got to give God his due. You know, <laughs> yeah, religion is a personal matter. This is, you know, what, what I, how I organize my life, how I want to pray to God, how, what I say, what I think, what I want to do. Um, you know, it's, it's my body, and I think it's okay to, you know, to have an abortion, and it's my personal relationship with God. Well, what does God want? Does God have a will? You've got a will. You know, my will, my, you know, what I, what I want to do is important. Okay, what about God? Does he have the same, uh, you know, part in this relationship? Is this a two-way street or a one-way street? Because if God is real and you have a relationship with God, then you have to wonder, what does God want? And if that's the case, it's not simply a personal matter. God is not a God just of each. Okay, how many billions of people are there in the world? Well, there aren't a billion gods. There's one God, and if there's one God, well, then it's not an exclusively personal matter to each individual. God would have a love, just like a parent has a love to all a parent's children. God would have a love for all of his people. And if he's got a love for all of his people, then his will, what he would want, would not be different for each person, unless he's a very you know, temperamental kind of God. Which uh, he's not. Which he's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, if God has something to say about this, then it's not just what you insist would be solely a personal matter. And then the last thing. The state should not be superior to the church. There's a reason why this country was founded with the idea that there is no establishment of any kind of religion by the government. The government has to have hands off. This whole con- uh, hands off to any religion. The whole concept that there's a separation of church and state is meant to argue that the church has to have hands off with regard to matters of the state. Well, it goes the other way, and it's it's more important that it goes the other way. The state has to have hands off from uh, with the church. If there is a God, and He exists outside of time and place. And he wants us to join him where he is outside of time and, and location. Then we have, then there is an afterlife. We do have our souls are eternal. There's more than just this world in front of us. And if all that's true, then the state should not be. The state is not all there is, you know. And and in people's personal lives, the church has to be uh, more important because. It, you know, to to look at it like, well, you know, the the state has the right to tell the church what to do inside the church. I mean, that's just, um, I mean, it's got things flipped in such a way that it's really not possible for God to be real. If God was real, it wouldn't be flipped that way. If God was real, God would be in the first place. 
I mean, the very definition of God. All, I mean, he would, I mean, I don't know what, what other kind of definition of God you can come up with, except for someone who, excuse me, created everything. Is all, if he created everything, then he's all powerful. Um, and so what? He's going to be subordinate to the church. Now, the beautiful thing about the Catholic faith is, for a moment in time, God actually loved us so much uh, that he decided to be subordinate to us. Came in human form as Christ. And he lived that way for 30 years, subordinate to his parents. But then there were three years where he assumed his proper role and told people the truth. And that they, there, was, there was a will of God that they needed to follow, that there was a life after this that, they could, that everybody could have, everybody could have, and that there's this tremendous love of God available to all of us. And then, of course, he, you know, after his horrible uh, sacrificial death, you know, ascended back into heaven. And, um, and, you know, so to claim that the state is, should control over God, it just has a view of God that I would argue can't be that real. It can't even be close. The fact of the matter is, God loves us with all his heart and soul, and he gives us opportunities. He gives us this chance at life, and we get to choose. God is so wonderful and so free, he gives us a choice. We can either choose to follow him and give in to his desires, or we can choose to follow ourselves and do what we want. And he's not going to stop us. God doesn't tell us that you can't do that. He says, I want you to follow me, but he gives us free choice, and we have that free choice. And then we will get to spend life, eternal life with him if we choose him. If we choose not, we will be separated from him. And that, that's the beauty and the simplicity of this. God doesn't want to be political. God doesn't want to demand. In fact, he's gone so far as the exact opposite. I'm telling you, here's what's right. Join me if you will. I think eternity will be wonderful together, right? And I think it'll be horrific if you're separated. But that is your call, your choice. I'm not demanding it. I'm giving you that op loving opportunity. And he puts that in front of us. Couldn't be any less political than any other conversation that you'd have. It is wonderful love that he's putting out there for us and not political at all. He gave us an example of sacrificial love. He Beautiful. Put, he put us first. He assumed uh, the most tremendous level of humility. Why? Because of love. And to assert, no, we have authority. We have power. We control. That's the opposite. You bet. That's, that's the opposite. So is there a truth? And what is, which is it? That humility, putting other people first, is the truth? Putting other people first because love is the common denominator. Is that true? Is that the truth? What if we operated on the other principle? Would that work out nearly as well? Because I need to have everybody saying, no, I get the right to control. And where does that stop? Anyways... Um, I think really what this talks, what this relates to, is 
the justification that you hear most often for abortion, and that justification is, it's my body. I mean, how can you argue with that? You know, you're trying to tell somebody what they can do with their body. It's my body. And so just like what Ms. Goldberg said, there's uh, a, a, it's a certain... There's a certain level where this is very reasonable. That argument is very reasonable. It makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. But again, let's look at it a little deeper. St. Paul, for example, had a different view. And his view is this. And, and I would imagine this is what he would write to us here in America as we're arguing about this question. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? If you have been purchased at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Okay, well, that's a contrary view. You are not your own. You belong to God. Well, yeah, if he made you in the first place, there's a consistency in that. There's a logic to it. It makes, it makes sense, again, if there's a gap. And so this, this really comes down to not, hey, some internal decision of a church and whether you know, a bishop should say this or a bishop should say that, not say this or say that. But it really comes down to, is there a God? If there's a God, that has implications. And one of those implications is you're not your own. If God made you, you're not your own. And to say that, you know, well, it's my body. I can do whatever I want. It put, takes God out of the equation, does it not? Now, you might say, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're stretching things too far. Lots of people who believe in God who still believe, um, you know, that you can have an abortion. Because this whole thing centered, this whole, you know, dust-up centered over Nancy, uh, a politician, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, a very high political figure in this country, uh, who claims, um, says, uh, and, you know, insists, and, I'm, and I would I have no reason to think otherwise, but that she believes in her heart she's a good, good Catholic. Well, it's, I mean, at a minimum, we, I think you'd, you'd have to say her Catholic faith is important to her. There's no reason to say anything else. Her Catholic faith is important to her. So there are people who can disagree on this issue, but nevertheless would believe in God. Okay. Um, but um, if that's, you know, if that's, if, that's really, if that's really so, then, you know, how can we say, well, this question about abortion really comes down to, is there a God? And, you know, to maintain that, that that's what this question comes down to, is there a God, is going too far. Well, like I said, let's look deeper. T.S. Eliot once said, the end is where you start from. And I think that applies here. If we look to the origins of the abortion movement, you're likely to find the ideas that started the movement. And one of the really early champions of the abortion movement was a guy named Lawrence Later. He was the co-founder of a group called NARAL. NARAL was the and for a long time, and maybe still is, the preeminent 
uh, pro-abortion organization in the country. They were the leader of the movement. They were founded by two people. One was Dr. Bernard Nathanson, and the other was uh, this individual named Lawrence Later. Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who was an abortionist himself, performed thousands and thousands of abortions, was a champion of the abortion movement, um, he eventually had a conversion, became pro-life, became Catholic, changed 180 degrees. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. That's absolutely uh, wonderful. Yep. The other co-founder was this guy named Lawrence Later. Now, he wrote a book that came out. Ju- there was an important Supreme Court decision in the 1960s called Griswold versus Connecticut. And that had to do with contraception. And the ruling was that a law restricting contraception was unconstitutional because laws cannot stretch into the bedroom. That is a private sphere. And there is a right to privacy. And that right to privacy, even though it's not stated explicitly in the Constitution, does exist in the Constitution. And that Supreme Court case provided the foundation for the later Supreme Court case in 1973 that we all know was Roe versus Wade. Well, just after this Griswold versus Connecticut decision came out, Mr. Later wrote a book titled simply Abortion. And one of the things he wrote in his book was this. He said, the ultimate freedom remains the right of every woman to legalized abortion. No woman can call herself free who does not own and control her own body. Now, again, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. Um, how can you be free if you can't control your own body? Freedom. And this is the ultimate freedom, the ultimate freedom, the right to control your own body. Abortion is the ultimate freedom. Well, that's a strong statement. Ultimate. What does that mean? It's the, I mean, it, it's total freedom. There's um, a problem with total freedom. Um, Total freedom does reject God. And let's let's explain it uh, this way. Um, If you have total freedom as a human being, then you're superior to everything. You're, you don't even have to follow the, do you have to follow the laws of nature? I mean, what is ultimate freedom? Is that the goal, at least maybe conceptually? I mean, why, the ultimate freedom, I mean, there's, it's an abstract concept. I mean, it's, it's shooting for the, the sky, ultimate free. Is that what people want? The, to be totally free. Well, if that's the case, then you would reject things that restrict that kind of freedom. And if God is seen as somebody who has these rules that restrict that freedom, well, you're going to reject God. If you reject God, well, wouldn't you also reject nature? God created nature. If he created nature and, and we reject God, would we not also create reject nature? Now, we, you would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now you are going too far. Not only do a lot of people who believe in abortion believe in God, but they certainly would a lot of them would be considered champions of nature. Forget people who reject, they'd be champions of nature. Really. If we would continue to read in Mr. Later's book, you would find this. 
We have advanced through the centuries toward a peak of dignity by increasing the role of reason in our lives. Civilization itself has been built on the taming of nature. Quoting Lord Buckmeister uh, to uh, something that he told the House of Lords in 1926, Mr. Later goes on, to me, the main purpose of man's existence is to fight these very evils of pain, sickness, and unhappiness, to engage in endless and constant struggle with the forces of nature until he makes them the servant of his will and the ministers of his delight. Certainly sounds like total ultimate freedom. Why? I mean, look, Lord Buckmeister is talking about, hey, conquering disease, you know, conquering people having to live out, uh, you know, in, in the cold of winter without proper heat. I mean, wouldn't he be talking about those things? Well, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But Mr. Later is quoting him in a book on abortion to stand for this principle of ultimate freedom. Our struggle is an endless, endless eternity, endless struggle against nature. It seems odd, and yet there it is. These ideas that support abortion run into themselves. They contradict themselves. They end up, you know, creating these logical inconsistencies. And we see them only if we really understand what they're about. When he's talking about ultimate freedom, that's exactly what he's talking about. Total freedom. And if you, if you reject God and if you reject nature, wouldn't you also reject the state? Wouldn't you also reject civil authority? Now, again, that seems, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going too far. I mean, we started out with this principle that the state controls the church. The state is, I mean, before, hey, uh, hey, Mr., hey, Mr., you know, podcast host, you started with by saying that these people are saying the church has to be subordinate to the state, that the state was supreme. And now you're saying these very same people would reject the state. Doesn't make sense. You're right. It doesn't. But that's what they say. He, uh, Mr. Later in his book says, uh, the culmination of this struggle, the triumph of reason over blind instinct, can come only when procreation is entrusted to each man and woman, not to the state, not to the church, not to any instrument of authority. All authority has to bend under individual choice. <laughs> we are... We're reject, rejecting all authority. On the one hand, you're going to say, hey, the state, the state reigns supreme. On the other hand, you say, you say, no, the state is nothing. They don't make sense. In uh, fact, so much so that we can tell the Archbishop of San Francisco that he is not, not allowed to decide where communion should and should not be placed. That's right? a, re, a religious question. Yeah, right. He's got no business. He's got no business in his own church yeah, deciding what should happen. Doesn't make sense. No. But that's what happens when you start with things that are not connected, that don't represent, that don't reflect ultimate truth. Eventually, you're going to run in some kind of a circle where you bump into yourself. Um, whereas things that are true, they don't have that problem. And 
they're good in any age, any place, with any people, with any type of people, because they're true. Because what, because that, because there's a God. That's what this podcast is all about: is using the words of the wonderful Saint Paul, who lived two thousand years ago. But everything he says still fits and makes sense because he was speaking the truth. He brought it here. The problem with this is that if you're talking about ultimate truth where you don't have to be subservient to nature, you don't have to be subservient to any authority outside you, is that you're chasing the impossible. It's not possible on this earth while we're living human life to have, quote-unquote, ultimate freedom. It's not possible. For example, we need food, don't we? If you need to eat, you need to do one of two things. You either have to work at a job and make some money so you can buy food from somebody else, or you have to spend hours tending a garden or, you know, uh, or working on a farm to produce food for yourself. But you're going to have to do something if you want to eat. Supposing you say, I don't want to have to work. I don't want to have to grow any crops. You're not going to eat. I mean, you can say that, but you are going to die. You don't have, there is no such thing as ultimate freedom. How about sleep? Supposing you say, I, wanna, I don't want to have to ever sleep again. Good. Give that a shot. I mean, there are things that you simply cannot decide. I don't want to grow old. Okay, uh, maybe you don't, but you will. You can't decide everything. There is no such thing as ultimate freedom. And if we're chasing ultimate freedom, we're chasing the impossible. And what does that do, by the way? And I know we're talking ideas and concepts and so forth, but that's, that's where this goes. And the problem is if we don't look at the ideas and the concepts, then we're dealing on the, with the things on the periphery, and you don't understand what, what's at the heart, what's at the center of something. And if you don't want to understand what's at the center of something, you're never going to understand it. So um, what does this do? if we strive for ultimate freedom. If this argument for abortion appeals to a desire for ultimate freedom, where does that go? What does that look like? Well, okay. I get to decide. Me. I get to decide. All right. So who am I? Well, I'm this person that's inside this body. Okay. If I don't have to um, adhere to any church, so I'm going to shut God out. If I don't have to adhere to nature and the things around me, okay, I shut out the physical world. If I don't have to adhere to the state, other people, I shut out all other people. What am I left with? Sounds lonely to me. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> sounds, sounds pretty brutal. I mean, in a quest for freedom, now you're trapped. You're trapped inside a body a single person with the entire world and everything that's in the world and everything you see and everything you can't see, all of it shut out. You're trapped. This quest for freedom has led you to a prison. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And this is where it leads. This is where it goes. Uh, this, is, this, is the, this is the wrong kind of freedom. St. Paul talked about a different kind of freedom. He said, do you not know that you are not your own? This is the Catholic view of freedom. 
Do you not know that you are not your own? Now, how can you possibly say? I, this, this whole program, I've been saying things that way, stretch things way too far and can't be, can't be right. And this one certainly can't be right. How can you say you are free and at the same time say you are not your own? Well, it's very simple. God is everywhere. God is timeless. God has created us to be with him. If we have this belief in Christ that we say we do in the Catholic Church, if each one of us in the church believes what the church says we should believe, that God wants us, um, as St. Paul says, uh, he destined us for adoption before the creation of the world, that God wants to adopt us. He wants us to join him in heaven. He wants to be with us. That's why we have the Eucharist. He still wants to be with us. That's why he came to earth, to be with us. If God wants this thing, if he's that much of a loving God, um, then we have a chance to get outside of our own bodies. We have a chance. If we join him, then we join that timelessness. We can have eternal life. Our souls, our resurrected bodies, souls can live forever. Um, we will not know boundaries of space. There are people with near-death experiences who talk about, you know, rising up above their bodies and looking down at their bodies and so on and so forth. Or take, for example, Padre Pio, who was in two places at once and had the gift of bilocation. You know, once you connect to God, you connect to the attributes of the properties of God. If he really adopts you, um, guess what? You're going to be more free than you could possibly ever dream you're going to have freedom beyond anything. That's freedom. And here's another kind of freedom. If you take on the attributes and properties of God and you love other people, you are extending something from yourself, something real. Love is a real thing. It's not just a word. It's a force. It's a power. It's a power and it's a force because the other person feels it. They feel it in their soul. You can touch them. You can create good. What can you take with you after this life? Well, you certainly can't take, you know, money, homes, cars. But you can take with you um, the gratitude that somebody has, the feeling that somebody else has in their heart because of the love, as a response to the love that you gave them. Your soul lives forever, and their soul lives forever, and you extended them love in this life, that love is going to live forever. Guess what? You've extended something out from your body. You're here in this world, physical time and space, inside a human body, but there's a soul inside your body, and you have power. I mean, you know, science can you know, do a chart the, you know, electromagnetic impulses in the brain and there's there are electrical forces and powers associated with the human body. Yeah, and, and you can extend some of that power through love to another person and it can live forever. You can transcend yourself. That's and, and they can actually feel it, right? You, oh, oh. you look at, you look at a, a child that has just been born and has no idea what's going around in the world and upset and hugs his mother for the first time and the two of them just touch and hug and the child feels the love that little baby that infant feels that love and it is unbelievable and that's 
in the first days of life, the first day of life, they can feel that love. They can feel that tenderness. They can feel that compassion. It is real. It is there. And that's God's love. That's what he's giving to us. And he gives it to every one of us from our first day that we're alive. He gives us those opportunities. And it is absolutely brilliant he gives us that. You know, um, as I listened and watched, as I watched video clips, um, of, of you know, this episode of The View, and I watched Ms. Goldberg make the statements that she made. She built herself up to a point where at the end she's saying, how to, comments directed to the archbishop, how dare you, how dare you? She was visibly angry. She was angry. Why does that happen? There's a guy who, um, I mean, why, why does this, view, you, you have a view. The program's called The View. She's got a view on abortion. Why do you have to get angry with your view on abortion because you don't agree with something that a bishop did? There's a uh, psychiatrist. I mean, one of the things we like to do on this program is when we're examining things and asking the question, hey, is it true? Is it not true? And we take principles of our Catholic faith. We hold them up against things that science can tell us. And often enough, we refer to um, experts in the field of psychology and see whether or not what we're saying kind of makes sense or not, whether or not faith goes along with, with reason. There's a man, uh, a doctor, uh, Dr. Leon Seltzer, uh, and he wrote an article, What Your Anger May Be Hiding, wrote it in uh, Psychology Today. And he's examined anger uh, for over 20 years, 100 uh, classes and workshops on anger management. And he says, during all of that, what he found that anger is essential for a lot of people. And uh, he said this because um, a lot of people, he said, um, he said that he's convinced that anger is employed universally to bolster a diminished sense of personal power. Anger can foster a sense of invulnerability. He said it can, you know, if anger can make us feel powerful, he said, it's... Um, uh, it can address our deepest doubts about ourselves. That's every bit as much of a drug as alcohol or cocaine. It talks about the fact that anger actually produces a chemical reaction in the body. Um, it acts as a sort of psychological salve. One of the hormones that the brain secretes during anger arousal is norepinephrine. I'm, I'm, that might be close to actually a correct pronunciation, maybe. Um, it's a, and that's experienced by uh, the organism as an analgesic. It's a pain. You get angry. Your body actually secretes a hormone that's like a pain reliever. Anger is the response to pain. What kind of pain? Doubts about us. And this is these are other things that, that Dr. Seltzer says. Um, that all of these, a lot of people, they, they have doubts about themselves. They have fears. They have insecurities. They're, they're powerless. They're rejected by other people, whatever it is, and then they get angry. He talks about situations where, for example, people need anger. It, it's something that they get addicted to uh, because the fears and the doubts and the in insecurities don't go away. He talks about, for example, you've got couples in relationships, and, um, you know, somebody get angry at, some, angry at somebody else, and then they, they're afraid that they're pushing that person too far away with their anger, and that scares them because they need that other person. And then that other, you know, so then, you know, hopefully they can draw that other person back to them. 
But then when they do that, they, then they're afraid, you know, maybe they're getting too close because, again, they've got these doubts and fears. And so, so then they act out in anger again, and it just ends up in this vicious cycle and spins round and round and round. And Dr. Seltzer says something funny. He says, look, he says, um, if I can find it, I just found it. He says, however, if we're healthy psychologically, then when we have the internal resources to self-validate, to admit to ourselves possibly inadequacies without experiencing intolerable guilt or shame, we're okay. The key is to avoid being angry, is to be okay if you're not perfect. The problem with this business about ultimate freedom and shutting out everything to the point where we're, the all we're an all-powerful all self and we don't have to answer to anybody, the problem with that is, well, what if you're not perfect? What if, there, what if you have problems? And all you've got is you and, you and the you that you have has problems? Well, that creates a problem. Whoops. Whoops. So how can we avoid that? Well, the one way is to be okay if we have problems. And, of course, if you're okay, you have problems, then sometimes you might have to depend on other people to help, but that's, that would be— Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, that problem. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I was thinking of a story that made me think of a story about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln had this remarkable talent. Through all kinds of turmoil, he remained humble, humorous, almost uh, like, uh, like very easygoing in the midst of a civil war that was tearing the country apart. And people thought he was just a buffoon. A lot of, uh, a lot of his cabinet just thought he was just dumb. But actually, you know, he turned out to be somebody who led our country through all of this because of that, I guess, you know, dumbness of his. Anyways... Uh, there's a general, uh, Mason uh, Brayman, who told this story. He said, I once heard Mr. Lincoln in the Supreme Court of Illinois reading from a reported case of some strong points in favor of his argument. Reading a little too far and before becoming aware of it, plunged into part of that uh, authority, which was against his argument. Realizing what he had done and pausing a moment, he dropped his shoulders in a comical way and, half laughing, went on, There, there, may it please the court. I reckoned I've scratched up a snake. But as I'm in for it, I guess I'll read it through. And so then he continued to read all of this um, prior uh, court opinion that, um, like I said, in part worked against him. But that's okay. He took the the good parts and the bad parts of that argument. He had made a mistake, and he just moved on, laughed at himself. It looks like I've, I've you know, brought a plunge. It looks like I've scratched up a snake here. And at the end of it, that humility, that self-deprecation, may have earned him the respect of the court. Well, here's a guy who's not too caught up with himself, um, and he's being honest with us. Isn't that and, wonderful? And he earned yep. credibility, and he ended up mm -hmm. winning the case. Um, the, you know, it's it again points to the idea that um, you know we are not, we can't expect ourselves to be perfect. We do need to rely on other people, and in the end, the person that we really need to rely on the most, of course, is God. And if we look at these things fairly and properly. Um, we're going, to, we're going to get to the point where these things make sense. And we can see clearly when things that other people are saying don't make sense. That's what we've tried to do here on this program.
we've we've done it maybe a little bit, uh, and that uh, we've been a little provocative, a little entertaining. Uh, but whether we have, whether we didn't, uh, that judgment will be yours. But to end this program, uh, we're going to call on, and I used to be able to refer to you, Bob, as uh, the deacon-to-be, deacon in training. Now, I don't have to do that anymore. Our co-host was just recently ordained, so Deacon Bob, could you please lead us in a closing for this program as we close all of them with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk and discuss, but mostly to love. Allow us truly to know that your love is here. All we have to do is listen to it. We seem to fight that. We seem to fight and push you away. We seem to fight and push away all your wonderful ideas and certainly your love. Your son, we almost argue sometimes about who he was and what he did. Yet all of that is there for us to understand you, to understand your love, and mostly to understand the eternity that we get to spend with you by simply choosing you as the one we love as well. Allow us to make that choice. Allow us to have that reason and that rhyme to understand, to choose you before anything else and to follow you and allow us to come to know you and be with you in eternity in heaven for the rest of our lives. We pray all this through the wonderful and glorious name of your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.